right, well, if you will uh, turn with me to Numbers 25. Numbers 25. As we continue to work through the book of Numbers uh, in the evening, we come to Numbers 25. And um, we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to read this whole chapter. It's not too long. So we'll begin by reading and then we'll, we'll open with a word of prayer. So uh, Numbers 25, beginning in verse 1, we read, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. Uh, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of this men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel." The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Kozbi, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Kozbi, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Well, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Uh, well, Father, again, we uh, desire to uh, know your works, know your ways, to know why it is you are to be sanctified above all, we desire to understand how your word in so many ways points us to the ultimate things that are to come 
point us to Christ. And again, help us, Lord, to understand the uh, devastating and destructive nature of sin and idolatry. Help us to understand this chapter this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, this morning, or the, uh, this morning, <laughs> I'm stuck on this morning. We are in the evening now, aren't we? Um, and the evening is beginning a lot earlier now <laughs> as well. So, uh, so this evening, of course, we are uh, coming to the point uh, in the book of Numbers where the first generation of Israelites uh, who came out of Egypt uh, is now coming to an end. Uh, they have all effectively died off through various plagues and judgments that the Lord sent against them. Uh, you'll remember that uh, all of their rebellions came to a head when the Lord promised to give them the land and they sent in spies to spy out the land. And rather than returning with a good report, about the land flowing with milk and honey and bearing much fruit like the fruit of grapes and the pomegranates and the figs that they had seen. And rather than telling the people about the fruitfulness of the valley of Eshkol and encouraging them to enter the land because the Lord had promised to give them the land, what do they do? They come back and they give a bad report, a discouraging report to the people of Israel. They said that the land is a land that devours its inhabitants. You go into this land and you're going to die. They said that the people who lived there were mighty and they were great in height. They were men of renown. They were Nephilim giants before whom they appeared to be like grasshoppers. And they tried to convince the people, as they are um, giving them this terrifying bad report, they're trying to convince the Israelites to go back to Egypt. In their mind, that would be better. That'd be better than what they have now. It'd be better than what the Lord has promised to give them in the promised land. You go back to Egypt and you'll live and your life will be better. They rejected the Lord's word. They rejected his promises. They despised his name. And so the Lord swore that they would never enter the promised land. Um, he, he would give them essentially what their hearts actually desired, which was no land at all. He said in Numbers chapter 14, verses 21 to 23, he says, But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, which, just as a side note, is an important promise to swear by, he says, None of the men who have seen my glory, who have seen my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. Right? So he swears by himself, and he swears by promises that he's made in his word 
that none of that first generation of Israelites, of course, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, will enter the land. And here in Numbers 25, we come to the moment in Israel's history where we learn of how that first generation finally dies off. This is how their story ends. And essentially, it ends where it first began. It ends by proving God's judgments as just. It ends by Israel revealing their hardness of heart and how that hardness of heart never changed throughout those 40 years. It ends with idolatry and with rebellion. And although it's uncertain as to when exactly the events of chapter 5, 20, uh, 25 took place, particularly in relation to Balaam's oracles, and is this happening like right after Balaam's oracles or towards the end of his oracles, it's not exactly clear, but what is clear from the narrative and what appears to be the case especially by the, the juxtaposing of Israel being blessed by the Lord in the previous oracles, in the previous two chapters, this is juxtaposed with Israel rebelling in idolatry yet again in this chapter. Because of how these chapters are put together, it does seem to be clear that Moses wants us to see that this story here is reminiscent of the story of the golden calf. Their story is ending in much the same way as it began. You'll remember that when Israel came out of Egypt, Moses was meeting with God on Mount Sinai, receiving the tablets of the covenant. God had revealed himself to Israel, and of course he had revealed himself not in a form, but on the top of the mountain with quaking, with thunder, with dark clouds, fire, and lightning. They never saw a form of God, but they did see his terrifying glory that caused them to fall on their faces in fear. And yet, while Moses was on the mountain for those 40 days, receiving the covenant from the Lord, Israel was at the bottom of the mountain, forming and fashioning a golden calf and bowing down to that calf as if it was the Lord himself. And here, it's as if the end of this Wilderness generation is just as it was in their beginning. God, of course, as we've just seen in prior weeks, He has just pronounced tremendous blessings on Israel through the mouth of a pagan prophet hired to curse them. He has spoken of a scepter, that would rise out of Israel and who would crush the forehead of Israel's enemies, like Moab, the very nation that is presently trying to curse them. 
Moab is, in essence here, an offspring of the serpent. They are not part of the seed of the woman. They are enemies of God's covenant people. And what God promises through the mouth of this pagan prophet is that a man, a a, a figure, is going to rise out of Israel and crush Israel's enemies. He has spoken also of one from Jacob arising and exercising dominion over the peoples. He has, in essence, confirmed and expanded the promises that were made to the woman in Genesis 3.15. And then Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. And then Judah in Genesis 49. He has, again, repeated and expanded the promises about a coming offspring. And again, has done so through the mouth of a pagan prophet. And while he is blessing Israel, while he is confirming his promises to them, Israel's heart remains stubborn. And Israel's heart is determined to continue despising the Lord. And so we find ourselves, in essence, as we come to chapter 25, banging our heads against the wall as we're given this kind of divine perspective of Israel's Baal worship that they start engaging in right after we see the Lord blessing them and pronouncing good things to come for them. The narrative opens by telling us that while Israel was living in Shittim, this is a city just east of the Jordan and the last city that they would be in before crossing the Jordan. But but while they were living there, the people began, it says, to whore after the daughters of Moab. Now, keep in mind that this is the same Moab whose king is Balak and who has been trying to curse Israel with a hired hand. The Moabites have no desire to actually make peace with Israel. They're not seeking Israel's blessings. They're not seeking Israel's good. And while the Lord has been turning Balak's curses against Israel into blessings, Israel now responds by going after the women of the very people who are trying to curse and deceive them. Now, what we find also is this whole episode is part of the scheming of this pagan prophet, Balaam. Now, we're not told this in chapter 25 specifically, but later in chapter 31, when Moses commands that the Midianites, who were basically a nomadic people living among the Moabites, or basically part of the Moabites, when Moses commands that the Midianites were to be killed as a judgment because of what takes place in this very chapter, 
he chides the officers of Israel's army for sparing the Midianite women when that judgment took place. And he says in verse 15, he says, have you let all the women live? And then notice, behold, these, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, in, in this incident. And so the plague came among or upon the congregation of the Lord. Right, so, so what has happened here is that Balaam knows that he can't curse the people of Israel. Right? He, he, he tried that. He wanted to do that. He was hired to do that, and yet he could not do that. He could only say blessings because he could only say what the Lord allowed him to say. But Balaam, Balaam's greedy, and he wants to get paid. Right? Balak has, has offered the riches of his kingdom to Balaam. And that's what Balaam wants. He wants his money. He's still a false prophet for hire. And so he constructs a scheme. He advises the Midianite women to essentially seduce the Israelite men. And while they're seducing them, they are to get the Israelite men to go about practicing idolatry with them which was essentially a pretty standard practice in the ancient Near East, right? So if you've got a, if you've got a man and a woman who, who come together in any way, and especially in, in, in any sort of marriage, but in any, any sort of relationship, you're, what, what, what typically would happen is you're, you're essentially adopting each other's gods, right? You know, so, so if you come from Moab and, you know, the main, one of the main gods you worship there is Baal of Peor and and then you meet some Babylonian woman and, you know, her, her, the main god she worships is, is Marduk or, you know, someone else. You, you, you basically combine all your gods together, okay? So, so when these men start getting with these Midianite and Moabite women, they're adopting the gods of these women at the same time. And Balaam wants these women to do this because he figures, you know, if I can't curse them... I can at least trick them to worship another god. And if they do, he figures, the Lord's going to judge them. The Moabites will then defeat them. That, that'll be the judgment against them. And then what? I can get my money. Right? Balak wins. The Moabites win. And I get my money. I may not have been able to curse them, but I could devise this scheme where Israel's going to come under judgment the Moabites defeat Israel, and then I get paid. And of course, Balaam is at least half right about those assumptions. The Lord is certainly going to judge Israel for its idolatry. But that doesn't mean that his promises and that his blessings to Israel are going to cease. And that doesn't mean that Moab is ultimately going to defeat the Israelites. And so Balaam is going to get the Israelites to practice idolatry, and we see in the account that's exactly what Israel does. The daughters of Moab invite the Israelites to the sacrifices 
of their gods. There is sexual immorality. There is forbidden marriages that are going to be a part of this. And Israel complies willingly, gladly, joyfully. The men begin worshiping Baal of Peor. And, uh, of course, Baal, again, is the, this, this Moabite god. Of course, ba- Baal is very common throughout the ancient Near East, but he is the, the Moabite god, and he is believed to have his residence, his temple, on the mountain of Peor, right? One of the key mountains um, in the territory of Moab. So they begin worshiping Baal. They yoke themselves to the god who was essentially nothing more, no one more than a demon, trying to curse them. And I think it's worth recognizing also the darkness that is involved in this Baal worship. It would, of course, be bad enough if Israel offered sacrifices to a false god in a relatively tame environment, right? Let's just be clear about that. That would be bad enough, right? If if Baal was some sort of peace-loving God and he just wants everyone to gather around and sing kumbaya to each other and then Israel starts worshiping you know this God that would be bad enough that would be a lie that'd be a rejection of the Lord but that's not what Baal worship was Baal worship was incredibly dark Psalm 106 verse 28 says that they ate sacrifices right as they're as they're sacrificing to Baal, they ate sacrifices offered to the dead. That's what was involved in Baal worship. There was necromancy, there were priests, there were prophets claiming to communicate with the dead, claiming to be able to predict the future because of their their dark relationships with the dead. There was temple prostitution. You can essentially think of it as as all kinds of different forms of witchcraft and fortune telling, right? There's there's violence involved. There's immorality that's involved. Pagan worship is by definition demonic. It is dark like it was here. And Israel was diving into head first into it. They're not even thinking about what's going on. They're just going right after the women and going right after the Baal worship. And so when this happens, the Lord's anger is kindled. Verse 9 tells us that He sends a plague against Israel that eventually kills 24,000 of them. So there's a lot of people who die by virtue of this event. And this is how, essentially, the last bit of that first generation dies off by this plague as a judgment against them for their idolatry and immorality. And while this plague is wreaking havoc on the remainder of this first generation of Israelites, the Lord tells Moses that the only way this plague will come to an end is when atonement is made. But atonement here is not going to be made through the blood of a bull 
or the blood of a lamb or goat or any animals. Atonement for the nation is going to come by executing the death penalty on the men who have joined themselves to Baal. It's going to come through Israel itself being the means of God's judgments against idolatry. And of course, no one delights in this. This is not a cause for celebration. It in fact causes much weeping among Moses and the people. There is no doubt weeping over those who are currently dying by the plague. I mean, 24,000 people in a very, very short time period are dying. There's no doubt people who are weeping over that. There is weeping over those who must die as a matter of judgment for their idolatry. And there is weeping because of the whole sad state of affairs. That Israel, having seen so much of God's goodness, having seen His glory, having seen so many signs and wonders of His care and protection of them against their enemies and against people who are seeking to kill them. They still despise Him and they harden their hearts against Him and they turn to sin. There is weeping, probably for many reasons. But to make matters even worse, while the people are weeping, while there is sorrow at the entrance of the tent of meeting, they've, they have received the revelation from the Lord about what has to happen. Okay? And while they're weeping before the sanctuary of God, this Israelite man named Zimri brings his Midianite woman, Cosby, to his family. And Cosby, we find out later in verse 15, is the daughter of one of the tribal heads in Midian, which means that she's probably one of the chief architects of this scheme against Israel. If Balaam, remember, is meeting with the head leaders of the Moabites, and he's advising them to use their women to seduce the Israelites with sexual immorality and idolatry. And Cosby's father is one of these heads. It's probably very likely that she was one of the women responsible for recruiting other women to partake in this scheme. She's like the chief woman, right, who comes to the other women on behalf of the chief men and instructs them in what to do. And this Israelite man, Zimri, brings this woman near the entrance of the tent of meeting while everyone is weeping over the judgment that has come among Israel. Now, Zimri is either an incredibly stupid man, right? he's just clueless 
as to what's going on. You know, sometimes, you know, that, that, that can be the case, especially, I, mean, I can be like this, you know, it's like you're, you're not reading the room very well, right? Zimri could be incredibly oblivious as to what's going on with all of this weeping that's going on around him, or he could also be incredibly defiant, or a combination of both. But either way, he has no regard for the judgment that has come upon Israel, and he brings this woman for all to see. And then we're told that when Phineas, one of Aaron's grandsons and part of the priestly family, sees it, when he sees this man bring this Midianite woman, we read that he picked up a spear and he killed both of them with a spear. And most importantly, it was then that the plague on the people of Israel was stopped, as we read in verse 25. So when Phineas, this, this man from the priestly line, picks up the spear and kills this Israelite man and the woman, it's at that point that the plague that eventually kills 24,000 Israelites ends. Now, I think there's a few important things that are going on here in this account, and, and particularly in this action by Phineas. One thing is that he does what the priests were supposed to do, namely, carry out God's judgments. He is doing what the priests were supposed to do. In verse 10, God says of Phineas that he turned back the wrath of God because he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Phineas, in other words, is reflecting, imitating, and carrying out God's will. He is here the instrument of God's judgment. God requires His people to be holy to Himself. He has consecrated them as His own and entered into covenant with them. They are to be a sacred people, and as a sacred people, they are not to run after other gods like the rest of the nations. They are to be a light. Whereas all the other nations are in darkness, and all sin among them must be purified and purged, either through animal sacrifices or through civil punishments. And Phineas upholds this covenant and carries out God's will. Another important point, and related to this, is that Phineas is not just acting here in a kind of fit of anger, but rather he is acting by faith in the Lord and in obedience to Him. Right? So, so it's not as if the only thing that's going on here is that Phineas is provoked and he just acts irrationally without thinking. No, no, no. 
He is actually here acting, doing this action as a work of faith. The Lord tells Moses in verse 4, He tells them to hang the guilty men in the sun as a judgment. They are to be brought under the curse of the law, which requires that a man who is put to death be hanged on a tree until sundown, and then his body is to be taken down. Now, the narrative doesn't explicitly tell us that Zimri was subsequently hanged on a tree, but what it does tell us about is the act, of course, of him being put to death by Phineas. And I think that the right assumption to make based on how the Lord commends him is not that Phineas is disobeying here, but rather that he is doing what the Lord requires and what the law requires. He is putting the guilty man to death. And again, he's doing so in faith. He is believing that by carrying out God's judgment, the plague will be stopped and no one else will die. That's what the Lord had instructed to be done, which is, of course, then exactly what happens. It's interesting as well that in Psalm 106, verse 30 and 31, which essentially summarizes this account, the psalmist describes this chapter like this. He says, Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation. That language there, it was counted to him as righteousness, is the same language that's found in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says of Abraham that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And the point that the psalmist is making by combining the language of Phineas's actions with the language of Genesis 15, 6 is to say that what Phineas did, his actions were done as a work of faith. He believed in the Lord. He acted on the basis of what the Lord had said and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that his actions would stop the plague as God said. And so he carried out God's judgment against Zimri and Cosby. And then a final point to note is that because Phineas acted in faith for the Lord, the Lord then rewards him with the priesthood. The priesthood is going to go from Aaron through Eleazar. And then when Eleazar's time as high priest comes to an end, it will continue through Phineas. He will be a priest and his descendants will be priests who are able to enter the most holy place in the presence of God and to minister before Him. 
He and his descendants will be the the privileged few, if you will, who are able to enter that holy of holies. And why? Because he sanctified the Lord. He upheld his name and his word. The Lord says that his name will be sanctified among his people and Phineas sanctifies his name. He does what the priest of the Lord is supposed to do. He carries out God's will. As we considered this morning, in this way, Phineas, in a very real sense, is a kind of man who foreshadows the priesthood of Christ to come. Christ's priesthood, of course, would surpass that of any of the Levites because it would be a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. But it would be a priesthood, like what Phineas is doing and like what the rest of the priests are supposed to be doing, it is a priesthood that carries out the will of the Lord. As a priest, he intercedes for us. He makes atonement for us who are his people. And as a priest also, he will carry out God's judgments. He will tread on the winepress of the wrath and fury of the Lord. He will be the Phineas who carries out God's judgments. And his priesthood, like Phineas, only greater, will be perpetual. Only not in this limited sense where he has to, you know, you know, the priest, they kind of, they, they reach a retirement age, right? And, and then they got to stop. And then the next person has to take over. But Christ's priesthood will be perpetual because his very own life is perpetual and eternal. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as Psalm 110 says. And he will uphold the sanctity of the name of the Lord and he will carry out all of his righteousness. So we essentially see here in this story, it's, it's, um, it's a great contrast. There's light and there's darkness, right? The great darkness is the continued disobedience that Israel in their hardened hearts continues to walk in. And just as it was promised that none of that first generation would enter into the promised land, so also are God's judgments confirmed as being just here as they continue in their rebellion and the plague comes upon them in judgment. We also see that little glimmer of light shining through as well with a man who desires to and does indeed uphold the Lord's name, sanctify the Lord's name, carry out his will and repudiate the idolatry of the surrounding nations and even the people of Israel uh, um, among them. So, several different things uh, going on here. Of course, this chapter um, concludes, like I said, that first generation, and then when we get into Numbers uh, 26, you have that that second census, where now we see this this new crop of Israelites uh, coming to uh, maturity. And uh, as the story unfolds, you know, then we're going to see whether or not the second generation is going to act like the first one, or are they going to be better? 
Right? Are they going to be obedient to the Lord and actually be able to enter uh, in the promised land? So I'm going to end there and um, see if you guys have any questions or any other rabbit trails you want to go down. And if not, we'll, we'll close the prayer. Yeah, Ezra? Uh, well, we're, we're not told exactly, um, but it seems to be the case that these events took place pretty quickly. Right? So this 24,000 people who were, who were killed, I, I think there actually may have been a place, maybe it was the psalm, I'll have to double check, but I think it, it may have been just a day. It was real quick. Um, All right, well, let's, uh, let's close with prayer, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close also with the, uh, the doxology. Uh, well, Father, again, we thank you for this evening where we can um, continue to study your word. And uh, Lord, especially we do um, pray that you would uh, help us to heed the warnings, especially that we see here about the dangers of idolatry, and uh, to take as our uh, greatest example a man who has the desires that you have, uh, he is jealous for the things you are jealous over. And in the same way, we are to be a people who are marked as being those who love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. We are to be marked as a people who, in zealousness for you, we keep your word and we reflect your very character and nature uh, within our own lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to this end uh, to walk faithfully Unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's.